Money, money, money. It's never really that funny, is it? Capital was the driving force behind the slave trade, but profit wasn't the only thing that grew from slavery. Modern finance as a concept and all its instruments like accounting and insurance began to come into being during the height of plantation society. If there's one thing I've learned on this journey so far, it's that where there is money, there is exploitation. So it's unlikely the development of financial institutions alongside slavery is just a coincidence. But as I've previously discovered, following economic paper trails can obscure as much as it illuminates. So I've decided to start this particular chapter with the most centralised financial centre in the UK, the Bank of England. In June 2020, while Black Lives Matter protesters were out on the streets of Britain, the Bank of England denied it had any direct links to the slave trade, but released a statement admitting that it was aware of some inexcusable connections involving former governors and directors and apologises for them. That's all well and good, but I have a feeling the Bank of England can tell us far more about Britain's involvement in the slave trade than just examining the plantation interests of former governors. There's a story here about how capitalism got its greedy claws into Britain and how the financial instruments that control so much of our way of life came to be. I'm Moylethe McLean, and this is Human Resources. By the middle of the 18th century, Britain had developed a very strong empire, which was to a large extent based on their ability to pay for wars using new financial instruments of which the Bank of England was central, but also on a plantation system based on the labour of enslaved people, plus lots of white immigrants going to places like New England, New York and to Virginia. That's Trevor Barnard, Wilberforce Professor of Slavery and Emancipation and Director of the Wilberforce Institute at the University of Hull. His particular interest is the plantation societies of British America, which means he has considerable insight into the economies that grew up around them. The development of slavery in plantation colonies in Barbados first and then in Jamaica in the late 17th century went along with some substantial changes in how Britain dealt with the finances. It's something that we and historians call the development of a fiscal military state which is the ways of what Britain was able to do in the 18th century was to do two or three things better than most countries in the world. One reason why their empire became so successful, firstly, was to be able to not only fight wars very well, but to pay for them without bankrupting themselves. They also were able to develop plantation societies to produce commodities, most notably sugar in the West Indies, but also tobacco, which were highly desirable back in Britain. They also were able to send lots of immigrants from Britain to the Americas, particularly to North America. What's the role of the Bank of England at this time and how does this grand institution come into play? The central role then and now is to underpin the credit of the nation. In other words, is to shore up the national economy. In the 17th century, essentially, the state under the crown had had all sorts of problems. That's why we lead to the first civil war also to the Glorious Revolution, which means that the state in particular did not have enough money to do what it needed to do, in particular to fight wars. The setting up of the Bank of England, coming out of the Glorious Revolution, was a brilliant solution to the financial problems that Britain had. And so that it did two things. It reinforced the credit of the nation. 
But it also meant that, along with other things, of people investing in the Bank of England, investing in various things like the East India Company and the Royal African Company, provided a whole lot of money which allowed the state to do things. It meant that everybody was invested in the national debt. One of the principles of the 18th century was that people, particularly rich people, needed to invest in the state in order that the state could survive and that they would have an interest in the state. And the Bank of England played an important role in connecting the people to the finances of the country and to making the state rich and powerful. So the Bank of England, I think you've got to remember, is very much a vital part of this reshaping of English then British society from the late 17th century onwards. What we could say also is that it's not that they are removed from each other. They're very integrally linked in this particular period. And I think that's one thing that really like to stress is that the development of the financial success of institutions in Britain is very much tied up with, not dependent on, but tied up with the development of slavery, plantations and colonies. So the financial success of institutions in Britain is tied up with the development of slavery, plantations and colonies. This won't come as a surprise to anyone who's been listening to the series thus far. But tracing the money directly is a popular way for institutions to avoid or deny their links with the slave trade. As I touched on at the beginning of this episode, a statement published on the Bank of England's website on the 19th of June 2020 says, There could be no doubt that the 18th and 19th century slave trade was an unacceptable part of British history. As an institution, the Bank of England was never directly involved in the slave trade, but is aware of some inexcusable connections involving former governors and directors, and apologises for them. OK, the bank was never directly involved, but does acknowledge connections. So, let's explore these indirect connections. Who was Sir Humphrey Morris? Humphrey is a great example of the type of people coming up in the late 17th century reasonably distinguished but not highly aristocratic stock, gentry stock, and established himself as a merchant in London and concentrated in a variety of things, eventually coming to concentrate in the trade with slaves in Africa. At the same time as the Bank of England was founded, there was a huge fight between merchants in London and the state, particularly the, the officers of the Royal African Company, about that particular company. It says something about how the ubiquity of slavery in that period, because the two sides, one was that the Royal African Company was a a great institution which was extending credit to everybody and was doing a good job. The people who opposed it, and Morris is very much in, Humphrey is very much in this area, said that the Royal African Company was not getting enough enslaved people from Africa at decent enough prices to be able to enable the colonies, particularly the West Indian colonies, to grow. And what Morris wanted to do was to get a share of that action. And he was very important in the early 18th century, between 1708 and the 1720s, in funding and developing lots of ships which went to Africa, sold British manufactured goods to African merchants. They then sold captives who became enslaved people and he sent those to the Caribbean. So he became a leading London merchant. And his involvement with the Bank of England was that as a leading London merchant, he became very closely associated with the leading institutions and then became part of the Bank of England, was on their directors, and then eventually by the early 1720s became a governor. And what sort of legacy did Morris leave? He's not someone the Bank of England remembers very fondly. 
even though he shows a great deal about how the Bank of England and slavery were intimately connected, because they chose as their governor, the Prince of Slavers, they called it that period. In the late 1720s, around about 1730, Sir Humphrey Morris got heavily overextended, started losing money, and uh, used his position at the Bank of England to embezzle large amounts of money from the Bank of England. And when he was about to get caught out, committed suicide. So he's not someone that the Bank of England would be very proud of because he stole large amounts of money from them. What I think is important is to say that it's not surprising that the Bank of England would have as one of its major functionaries and eventually its governor a leading slave trader because the slave trade was one of the biggest businesses in London. And it's not at all surprising, therefore, that you would take someone who knew about the slave trade to be the Bank of England for two reasons. One would be he's very rich and was and therefore a great merchant and could bring other merchants along with him. But secondly, through involvement in the slave trade, you became a very expert in all very intricacies of, of finance, which was necessary to become a top banker. Due to Sir Humphrey Morris's success in the slave trade, it wasn't a surprising choice for the Bank of England to make him a governor as they'd be able to use his knowledge of trade and connections within the banking business. So, hypothetically, let's say I'm starting a business today and I hire, let's imagine, a successful drug dealer into my business in order to take advantage of his money laundering skills and networks within my work. I specifically hire him because I know he's built a great drug business. Is my business then connected to the drug trade? Something to think about. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Was there almost a revolving door between the mercantile community and decisions like who sat on the board of governors of the Bank of England, or positions in high-ranking financial institutions during this period and the early 18th century? Absolutely. They have a different conception in the early 18th century of the relationship between the state and commerce. We might think nowadays that if you've been appointed to the Bank of England, therefore you have to give up all shareholding and make sure that you're not corrupted by all the various things that you might be involved in. They didn't have that view in the early 18th century. What was important was to attract the great men of credit who would show that they supported the aims of the Bank of England. And people joined the Bank of England because they expected to get something out of it not only to help the Bank of England, but to get rich in the process. So the interest groups of that particular period are very closely associated with it. And no one really thought anything was very much wrong about it. And of course, a few years later, in the 1720s, they had the great scandal of the South Sea Company bubble, which of course is also associated with slavery because the aim was that the South Sea Company would sell goods, including Africans, 
to Spanish America, and it became a huge bubble and bust. And that ruined the reputation of the city for many people for a long time. But it also showed just how closely the institutions of the state and the titans of London commerce were joined together. There's been interesting discussions recently, and we talked about this in our episode, Laws of the Manor, linking families who received compensation for owning slaves with the fortunes of their descendants now, who are often still wealthy or occupy powerful positions like being politicians. How much of the wealth that was built up in this early period of the slave trade and within these institutions, such as the Bank of England, has an impact now? How much of it was hereditary? And why don't we acknowledge these connections as much? It still has links. I mean, I would say that lots of people made money from slavery and that that money has trickled through to the present day. But it seems to me that that's relatively unimportant over the much bigger thing, which I think is that between the middle of the 17th century and and the middle of the 18th century, Britain was heavily implicated in slavery in all sorts of ways, that the money from slavery uh, sloshed around all areas of British society and British commerce. And it's very hard to understand, I think, the late 17th century and the 18th century without understanding just how much slavery underwrote most things in Britain, which then led after that to something which was just as remarkable, which was Britain deciding that it would abolish the slave trade first and then abolish slavery, because this was something which was going against the interests of very powerful people and the interests of the British people as a whole in order to accomplish something which you would say was accomplished for moral reasons rather than economic reasons. But it's not a surprise that the wealth of people in the 18th century in a country which has not had a revolution and which the in which the wealth of those people has continued to the present day is in many ways associated with slavery. Okay, let's broaden out our focus a bit. How did people on the ground participate with the plantation economy that was springing up around them? From the late mid-17th century, under the auspices of the Crown, it's very interesting when you see what's happening in Bristol, throwing into the water of the statue of Edward Colston. What we always need to remember is he was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company. The governor was the king. It was a royal company. And the Royal African Company, which was set up in the 1660s to trade with Africa, was something which was part of royal domain and was a way of getting money into the royal coffers. The plantations were very important in providing a lot of taxation. Every time you bought sugar, every time you smoked tobacco, a little tax was paid. So there was lots of ways in which ordinary people were, whether they wanted to or not, were contributing to the plantation economy. So the Royal African Company was a very, one thing we need to remember, I think, about the Royal African Company and about slavery is that enslaved people were very expensive pieces of merchandise, which is a rather unfortunate way to talk about human beings. The state in particular, and then merchants as well, had to extend a lot of credit to individuals in order to buy slaves, if they happened to be in in the colonies, develop goods that could be used to buy enslaved people in Africa, in order to deal with all the various things which came from the plantation economy. That is such an important fact to remember. Edward Colston was the deputy governor, and the governor was the king. This is definitely one of those conversations bubbling within the Republican Abolish the Monarchy movement. Trevor also mentioned credit, and as this is a big part of economies now, 
How did ideas like credit and debt develop in the first place? And why? Surely when they started, it wasn't with quite the intention of them being used like they are now. So a lot of the instruments of credit and debt and international trade came up very much through not only the Royal African Company, but the Royal African Company was crucial in developing sort of, I guess you would say, a more expansive view of finance. And that needed things like the Bank of England. It meant that in the period where England and then Britain, the whole economy was connected with slavery. And it was particularly connected with slavery in the development of innovative new forms of financial instruments like credit and debt, things to do with the Bank of England, which enabled Britain's economy to grow and which eventually led to the sorts of things like the Industrial Revolution. Slavery didn't create the Industrial Revolution. That's something which we probably realised that it didn't do. But what it did contribute to uh, was an innovative mentality within the British uh, middle class in particular. It led to growing wealth, which could be used in all sorts of ways among the British working middle and upper class. And it meant that just about everybody in Britain was involved in the sort of new financial systems, which helped to develop both the state and the economy. You mentioned how slavery and the slavery economy helped the development of financial instruments. In layman's terms, does that mean something like my overdraft or loan essentially owes its roots and ideas of credit to slavery and the systems that grew around that? Well, not entirely. There are lots of other roots into it, which go all the way back really to things in the Middle Ages and Florence, etc. But you make it a very valid point. Your mortgage, all the various things of credit cards, etc., etc., are modern institutions which have their roots in the late 17th century. They're not something which arised straight out of slavery. But slavery contributed very much to those things. So it's no surprise that the Bank of England, Lloyd's, for example, all the various things with marine insurance are completely tied up, which means that if you were a, a major businessman in London, for example, in the early 18th century, you would have had some involvement with, if not slavery directly, at least with the instruments, the financial instruments, which kept the plantation system going and which kept slavery going. Throughout this series, we've heard about the various ways slavery helped shape the country. And the main theme throughout each aspect has been its influence on the economy. That got me thinking, and was obviously a difficult question to pose, but I wondered whether Trevor had any idea what our economic systems would look like without slavery. For example, would we be mired in late-stage capitalism, or would we be in a completely different setup altogether? I mean, I guess one way you could say is that uh, we could look at countries which do not have a large investment in Atlantic slavery, and we could look at places like Germany, for example, and say, well, maybe we would have ended up like Germany eventually. I have a feeling that probably wouldn't have been the case. The 17th and the 18th century laid the foundations for various forms of modern capitalism. I think it's a mistake to say that it's directly connected with slavery, but slavery was part of the whole system. And some of the things which I think we need to pay more attention to are things like how the hierarchies of wealth and status are connected with the hierarchies which were associated with slavery in the 18th century and perhaps with the aristocracy in, in, in Britain in this particular period as well. I certainly think that what Britain did in this particular period was lay the foundations for particular forms of finance, of industry, in which slavery was associated, which have continued through to the present day. And it's very hard to disintegrate what happened then with what is the case now. 
Do you think our particular economic philosophy and attitude towards capitalism, which I think in Britain is very individualised, is something that developed in the current contemporary era? Or does this way of thinking have roots further back? The desensitisation, where economics are removed from any sort of feeling, you know, like a rational, disembodied approach to things. And if somebody out of sight, out of mind is suffering, then it doesn't matter because there's money being made over here. We're profiting, so it's fine. Does this attitude we have have links to that period? Or is it just something that has organically grown regardless and was a part of how people thought before slavery even began? When I study Jamaican planters of the late, late 18th century, they often remind me of the worst types of vulture capitalists of the present day. They were particularly interested in commodification. They commodified everything, including people. We do have roots of those at the moment. There are now things within accountancy which talk about human resources, human capital, and the links they have with slavery, I think, are very direct. When we think of slavery, I think one of the things that I often think the students find most objectionable about slavery is not that it was violent, not that it was vicious in all sorts of ways, but it involved the commodification of humans. And so when you show documents which show individuals with prices attached to them, that can be very disturbing. And I think it's very disturbing because there's so much of today is like that. That's what we do to ourselves. And I think it's an interesting thing that we used to have a personnel department and now they're human resources. A slave owner would understand that very clearly. And a lot of the things about slave owners in this period, and a lot of the things about merchants, I connect to certain things which are characteristic of both early modern and late modern capitalism. One is an overwhelming emphasis on profit at the expense of ethical considerations, an emphasis on the short term rather than the long term, but it's also been very based on innovation and those things. So the slavery and the slave trade brought about things which in capitalism you might consider good as well as bad. The other thing that I would say, though, is that slavery itself can't be disentangled from a process of emancipation and abolition. Slavery was very bad, but it also was something which ended. And one of the things that's important about it is that from the 1760s onwards, people, mainly for religious reasons, but also because they've been part of market societies which started to think about think people in different ways, started to say, we actually have an obligation to people overseas in the same ways that we have an obligation to people at home. And that to love one's brother, the golden rule, started to be extended by people from the 1760s onwards, not just to people in their locality, but people who they didn't know, people who might be of a different racial complexion to themselves. So that the slavery and the abolition of the slavery did change how we view our responsibilities to people. It was this moment when speaking with Trevor that the journey of this series became crystal clear. Our goal was always to connect Britain's slaving past to our present day, but it's often so easy to feel like this has nothing to do with us and that we know better than to repeat past practices. When Trevor spoke about us doing this to ourselves by placing monetary values on each other and how personnel departments became human resources and that slave owners would know exactly what that meant, things clicked that these legacies are all around us and we, as individuals, may inadvertently be resurrecting these systems. I needed to know more and ask Trevor for examples of the legacies left by those financial practices developed during the slave trade. In every corporation, it used to be that the part of the institution that used to deal with employment matters and with people was called personnel. Now it's called human resources. 
and many of them have established modes of operating, which is human capital, where you value the particular experiences that people have and you add that to your corporation. Well, if you're an historian of slavery, the idea of labeling anything as human resources, let alone human capital, raises a lot of warning signals. Because I think one of the things that merchants and slave owners did was that they really did develop ways whereby they could value people and put money values on people, which have had a long lasting effect. And indeed, the relationship of slavery to accounting practices is a newly developing field and a very important one. The history of accounting and slavery are very closely connected. I think there's also an interesting link there between modern day figures like influencers being judged for their value about who can get the most money in for a post and the human resources and human capital back then. That's something I would say has been really noticeable in the last 25 years, that people are increasingly valued in all sorts of ways, so that many of your friends, if not yourself, will be in organisations where they have a money figure attached to them. That's the amount of money they need to bring in. That's the amount of money they are worth to the institution. How, in some ways, is that terribly different from slavery? And one of the ways we think about it is with some of the most privileged people in society, footballers. They have a value attached to them. Accounting isn't that different from slavery, although one wouldn't say they're slaves because they're uh, rather privileged. But the basic principles are not too dissimilar. And sometimes you see that there have been baseball players or soccer players. They'll say, well, I'm just a slave. Well, you're not really a slave when you're worth many hundreds of millions of pounds. But when a value is attached to you and you can be sold from one football team to another without you having any say in it, aspects of it which come out of slavery. I don't think I'll ever be able to scroll Instagram in the same way again. And now I actually have a reason to reject HR emails. But those things aside, I understand how deliberately complex financial instruments like credit, debt and our centralised banking system are entwined with slavery. How legacy some early accounting practices then endure now. How we've never quite escaped valuing human life as equivalent to their net worth or the money they can make for others. How the trade relied on the transformation of people from human beings to resources and how we preserve those values today within financial institutions we continue to maintain at the cost of all else. Making this series has taken me across modern Britain in search of a past that some seem like they would prefer to remain mostly hidden. I've heard about wool spun in Wales that lowered the mortality rate of Welsh infants while clothing enslaved peoples whose life expectancy was just 36 years old. I've uncovered stories of how Britain's scientific discoveries in the Age of Enlightenment owe a debt to not just brilliant minds, but to slave ship surgeons and plantation owners. We've gone from Jamaica to Herefordshire to Liverpool and Virginia. At times I've felt almost electric with the knowledge that I'm tracing the steps of my ancestors on both sides. I don't think enjoyable is the right word to use about a journey such as this, but I do feel lighter, like a weight of some sort has been lifted. It feels like we've exhumed a history from its slot on the potter's field and are now giving it the memorial service it deserves. I feel like I'm starting to understand why Britain got to where it is now. And honestly, I thought I'd feel angrier at the people who want this history not to be taught. But I just pity them. They operate from a fear of the unknown, And until they face up to this shared past, they'll always be running from it. I'm not, though. And neither are you.
Season two will return later this year. If you've enjoyed this series, please rate and review on your favourite podcast app and share Human Resources with your friends. Human Resources was produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz, and our production assistant is Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production.